Hi guys, Liz Wheeler here. I have some bonus content for you today because you're always asking me for more content. So I am trying to deliver on that request. This is a little bit different, what we're gonna do today. This is me, but in a little bit different scenario than you normally see me. Normally you see me hosting or being the one who's asking the questions. And in what I have for you today, I am the one who is being asked questions. I recently was on Dave Rubin's show. He was interviewing me about this, that, and the next, in addition, of course, to a deeper dive into my book. And he very generously allowed me to post the first 20 minutes of that interview on my platform so that you could take a listen. If you want to listen to the full thing, you can go to Dave Rubin's um, his YouTube account and, or his Rumble account, and you can watch the full thing. But I wanted I wanted to share this with you because I enjoyed it. Dave and I always have a good time talking. And without further ado, here you go. I'm Dave Rubin, and joining me today is the host of the Liz Wheeler Show, as well as the author of the new book, Hide Your Children: Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. Liz Wheeler, welcome back to the Rubin Report. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Liz, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is your first solo appearance on The Rubin Report. You've been on like a thousand panel shows, but is this our first one-on-one? -on -one? It is, it is. It, it, it doesn't seem like the first time because I'm so often on your Friday show, but yes, this is, this is basically what it's like when you and I hang out. <laughs> we shall see, we shall see. A lot of pressure, sister. <laughs> Um, all right, you, just real briefly, for the most of my audience, of course, knows you, but for the, for the people that do not know you, you want to give a, uh, a minute recap of who Liz Wheeler is and why it is that she's trying to save our kids from the Marxists. Yes, indeed. I'm Liz Wheeler. I host The Liz Wheeler Show. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you watch, your, wherever you watch or listen to your pods. I'm a political Podcast commentator. Pro. I'm... Yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> maybe not YouTube, maybe head over to Rumble if you value free speech because we talk about a lot of topics that uh, are not allowed on YouTube. But what I'm most dedicated to, I'm a mom, I'm dedicated to preserving my, this country, this great country of ours for my family, for my two and a half year old daughter. I see what's happening before our very eyes. I see the capture of our institutions. I see the degradation of the fabric of ordered society. And I don't want that for my daughter. This, the, the, the best part of this country is it gives us the opportunity to live virtuously, to worship the God that we want, to say what we want, to live our lives according to the tenets of um, our viewpoints. And if we, if we don't stop the assault against those things, then we're not going to have the country that we have. So we talk about everything from COVID to transgenderism, to election integrity, to the administrative state, really pushing aside the establishment republicanism that has actually led us to where we are and taking a more based view of reality in trying to solve the crisis that we're facing. When did you realize the level of the craziness that we were fighting, meaning something that was beyond just, oh, we're arguing about tax breaks and we're arguing about, you know, little this and that issues, but sort of the big cultural stuff that of course leads to all the stuff related to kids. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to think, and then maybe this is too flattering, it's too self-flattering. I'd like to think I've been based for a long time because the way that I got into politics and got into political commentary was kind of by accident. I, in late high school, I was diagnosed with a serious autoimmune disease and I spent a lot of time 
uh, well, being sick with that and recovering from that. And during that period of time, you know, when you're sick, you're kind of bored. There's not a lot that you can do physically. So I started reading a lot of books and getting involved. This was like at the very beginning of political Twitter, getting involved in political discussions on Twitter. Just that was that was one of my interests. I liked sort of the adrenaline that went with politics. But I also at the same time, given what I was dealing with personally, uh, came to a realization that these so-called institutions that we trust, the quote-unquote experts, aren't always dedicated to being an expert in their field. They're not always dedicated to science. For example, there was no pharmaceutical solution to the autoimmune disease that, you know, I still manage, I still deal with. And what does big pharma do? They just kind of brush you to the side. They aren't interested in saying, well, maybe if you manage your diet differently, maybe if there's some kind of natural supplements or something that you can do alternatively, that this would help you have more chance of living a normal life. They don't give any of that advice. They're only interested in profiteering off of people's problems. So I think that I was, for better or for worse, red-pilled at a relatively early age because I saw that the only reason that I was able to actually pursue those alternative means to health was because my dad is a small business owner and he used the money that he saved to pay out of pocket for these alternative treatments. Whereas if we were in a socialist nation and he wasn't free to enjoy the fruits of his labor, if we had a socialized healthcare system, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I think I was red-pilled and kind of cynical about institutions from the beginning. And then once you, once you realize that that's the case, in, in one institution, you see it happening in the other institutions as well. And isn't that ironic because some of the positions you were talking about being, you know, sort of leery of say big pharma, uh, those would have been thought of as lefty positions, say 15 years yes. ago. And now, especially since COVID, that has just completely flipped on us. It's so funny because for the majority of my adult life, I'm 34, and for the majority of my adult life, I've lived in two different worlds. I live in the, I would say, very conservative world in politics, and then I live with a bunch of, I, I live in a world, uh, not literally, not like a commune, but with a bunch of <laughs> crunchy leftists who also go to the chiropractor and also try to eat plant-based. And these people are generally like really woo-woo, hippy-dippy, crunchy people, and they're leftists in their politics for whatever reason. Um, but now it is funny. It's 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 even like questioning things like questioning vaccines. That was always uh, a leftist position until the right. COVID vaccine. And now the right has adopted that. It's it's funny to be in my position where I've always been on the line of conservative politics, but leftist, if you will, health views, because now it's like, well, yes, join the club. Right. You were also much like me. You were in Cali for COVID. You fled yes. California. You did not make it to the free state of Florida. You went elsewhere. But uh, <laughs> you want to talk about how you were based in Cali during a time of COVID? Yes, yes, I will. And by the way, for everyone watching and listening to this, this is an ongoing, this is bullying from Dave to get me to come to Florida, <laughs> which I appreciate. I appreciate, although the humidity might be a little high. I love California. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't hate California with this, this visceral, this visceral rage that a lot of people feel towards it. I think California is paradise. I think there's a reason that historically the Golden State was the land of opportunity. This is where you would go, California, to seek your fortune, really, to find the American dream. And it actually breaks my heart to see what's happening in California because California is still paradise in a sense. It's beautiful. There's so many resources. It's it's like nowhere else in the United States. My heart is in California and it really is just crushing to see what leftist politics do to a land that is so beautiful and so prosperous and somewhere that, that it used to be everyone desired to move to. But 
with the open border and with Gavin Newsom at the helm, with his technocratic dictatorship in California, with his dedication to quote unquote climate change, with cracking down on free speech, they have a law right now that they're trying to pass. It's a bill, I suppose, that they're trying to pass into law that would actually define parents who decline to put their children on a gender affirming, quote unquote, gender affirming model as child abusers. You can't raise a family in a, in a, in a climate like that, that you, you risk losing your child, the thing around which your entire life revolves. I mean, we are fighting in politics, Dave, you and I, because we want what's best for our children. It's not even about us. We're adults. We're halfway through our yep. lives already. This is about what's best for our families. And you can't raise a family in that circumstance. You have to leave. And it makes me really sad because I didn't want to leave. It's so interesting because for me, you know, as a relatively new father, like when that thing was being passed in Cali, which passed the legislature, by the way, right? I mean, it's passed already. Now it's about divorced families, but they're going to expand it, obviously. I I kept saying on the show, it's like, you must leave now if you're a parent because you're sending your kids to schools where they will be brainwashed into this stuff. And you don't want to be there that day when they come knocking at your door and, you know, we're calling... Uh, your your daughter uh, a boy's name, and if you don't accept it, we're taking the kid. But it's real. Yeah, it's it's real, and this is what I write in my book. I mean, the left is actually waging a deliberate and relentless assault on our children. This is not hyperbole. This is not bombastic. This has been going on for the last century. For a century, the left has attempted to re-engineer society. They've actually captured and co-opted four of the five foundational cultural institutions in our nation, the media and religion and education and law. And they've just about destroyed the family as well. There's one element that is remaining of the family and that is children. And the left now has their sights set on our children. And meanwhile, while all of this was happening, what were conservatives doing? We were complacent. We were, we were blind to this. We were blithely unaware as this was happening. And now we face what we're facing. We face uh, a, a, a literal assault on our children. And so in the book, I name the names of the people behind not only the capture of these institutions, but behind the attack on America's kids. If we don't acknowledge the reality of the political enemy that we're facing, we'll lose. We will not win. And it's it's not just a matter of fighting for the sake of children's individual souls. If the left successfully captures children, our nation is done. So one thing that I thought was interesting in terms of the title is that you said Marxists. You didn't say wokesters. You didn't say communists or socialists. You said Marxists. I wonder what was your thinking on that? Do you want to define it clearly and maybe contrast it to some of those other terms? Because everyone's sort of using them interchangeably these days. It is. And it's actually interesting because when I started writing this book, I wasn't looking for Marxists. It wasn't a fishing expedition. I I acknowledged what almost every person in our country has acknowledged, that there is this sustained assault on our children from all of these different angles. And I thought, why? Why now? Why in this coordinated way? And it turns out the answer to that question isn't a why, it's a who. Who is behind this and why are they doing that? And it turned out that there was a pattern of ideology behind each of these assaults. So, for example, what I found is there is a a Marxist by the name of Antonio Gramsci who essentially um, brought back from the dead 
original Marxism. He, he, he revived it and turned it into 21st century Marxism. And he twisted it from purely economic Marxism, like, oh, the working class is going to revolt against the ruling class. He turned it into, well, wait a second. The working class isn't going to revolt against the ruling class if they rely on the cultural institutions of the working class. So he said, before we stage an economic revolution, we have to stage a cultural revolution. We have to go after these five major foundational civil institutions, the media, education, religion, the law, and the family. And what we are seeing now, it's so interesting, Dave, what we're seeing right now is not new. It's not a new idea. It's not a new ideology. It's not a new enemy. It's actually hundreds sometimes hundreds of years old, it's just been repurposed for this moment. It's why I say if we don't acknowledge what we're facing, we're not going to fight well against it. But once you see who's behind the assault on each of these institutions, I mean, you can, you can certainly put a stop to it because you can, simply, you can simply thwart their strategy, which these old Marxists lay out maybe even more clearly than the new leftists do today. Do you make any meaningful distinction between some of those terms, woke, Marxist, communist, socialist, at this point? Like, does it matter to delineate that any, any further? Yeah, it does matter. So the word woke, there were a, a month or two ago, there was a debate. Uh, it was it crossed over from conservative media to to liberal media about what the word woke means. What What's the definition of the word woke? What is what does this mean? And it's a great question. It's an answer. It's a question we should all be asking. So I actually trace. Can back I can I do mine woke. in two? Can I do mine in two sentences? And you tell me if I'm doing it all right, because everybody was oh, asking, yes, can ahead. I do mine? Lay it on me. It's, it's believing in equity over equality with a dash of racism and a little gender confusion. How's that? <laughs> That's exactly how it's manifested and applied. The ideology underneath it can be traced directly to a Brazilian Marxist named Paulo Freire. Paulo Freire applied this idea to the education system in Brazil, he actually experimented on peasants in Brazil. He ran these like 45-day experiments on peasants, teaching them only leftist things in school so that they would then go out and vote for leftist politicians. And he said that teaching knowledge in school was oppressive. He said, knowledge, there's, there's no such thing as knowledge. There's no such thing as truth or objective reality. It's just, he said, he defined uh, knowledge and fact as just the prevailing political ideology. Right. He said children, instead of being taught knowledge, should be taught critical consciousness, which is a way of thinking about the world. Now, critical consciousness is just a euphemism for teaching children to view everything through the lens of Marxism. That's what wokeness is. Wokeness is just a rebranding of Freire's critical consciousness. So if you look at wokeness in our country, whether it's corporations, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's DEI, whether it's gender ideology, it's all Freire's critical consciousness. It's training this, this young generation of American children to view everything through the Marxist lens of oppressor versus oppressed, that the oppressed have to revolt against the oppressors, overthrow the civil institutions. For what purpose? For the purpose that Marxists have laid out from the very beginning, to overthrow Western civilization. As evil as you think the ideology obviously is, are you ever impressed with their ability to have had it spread and how quickly it's destroyed so much? And, and also how no matter what happens, it always causes them to double down. So, you know, for example, if we reverse systemic racism through the Supreme Court getting rid of affirmative action, somehow now that actually is proof to them that the courts are corrupt, thus more fuel for their fire. 
Listen, you know what impresses me and what I, I actually paused when I was writing this book because it like hit me as a revelation. It impresses me that the Democratic Party today always uh, operates as a cohesive unit. Like they never have any significant dissenters. Like it's, they always are marching in lockstep. And you compare that to Republicans in Congress or in the Senate and Republicans seem kind of haphazard. They're not always cohesive. They can't always like move as a unit. And sometimes conservatives are like, oh, that's because we allow independent thinkers in the Republican party. That's not actually why Republicans don't operate in lockstep. It's because Democrats are committed to their ideology. They know what their ultimate goal is and they know the tools that they're using to achieve their ultimate goal. But Republicans have lost sight of what our ultimate goal is. If you ask any Republican in elected office, any Republican commentator, a Republican voter, what 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 is the ultimate um, goal of our society? What do we hope to achieve with our society? Most of them can't answer what that is. They can't answer, well, is freedom the means to something greater or is freedom the ultimate end? Because those two things are radically different and radically change what our governing philosophy is at the state level and the federal level. And if we don't, as Republicans, have a cohesive definition of what we want for our society, then of course we're not going to agree on how we achieve that. And then we're just going to be a chaotic party like we are. And what happens when we have a chaotic party? It leads us to the cultural crisis that we're in right now. Yeah. Do you sense some of that shifting with the Republicans at all? I sense a new and I find delightful tension in the Republican Party, where some people are waking up to the fact that the old guard of Republicanism isn't effective. I think a lot of people don't know why the old guard isn't effective. We oftentimes um, ascribe it to just being corrupt. And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of corruption in politics, even on the Republican side. But it's not just corruption. It is the lack of ability to define that the goal of a society should be human flourishing. We want human beings to flourish. That's what we want from a society. That's the goal of the United States of America, our experiment in liberty. The goal is human flourishing. Maybe we define human flourishing differently than the left does, which just begets another conversation. How are we going to define what's the base level here, the, the, the reality that we will all agree on to build our society off of towards something, towards what? What are we going to order it for? What's the purpose of liberty? And I'll give you a concrete example here. So David French, we all know him. He was at the National Review. He's now in the New York Times. He now writes for the New York Times. He made an argument once that drag queen story hours where grown men dressing as sexualized, stereotypical versions of, of women gyrate in front of children in scanty outfits. It's horrendous. He once made the argument that that was one of the blessings of liberty guaranteed in our constitution. <laughs> and I actually think that this is a perfect example of a disordered view on whether liberty should be the means to something greater or whether liberty is the end in and of itself. If you define liberty as the ultimate goal, then yes, David French is correct because just the liberty to do something like that, even if you and I find it to be horrendous, would be moral because they have the liberty to do that. But we understand, everyone understands that this is not a moral thing. This is a, an abjectly immoral thing for men to act in that sexual manner around children. It's horrendous. We all know this at a gut level, a visceral level, which should bring us to the question, okay, well, if liberty is not the ultimate end, then what is the ultimate end? Is liberty but the means to something greater? And if so, 
we should pass laws and order our society from the local, state, and federal level, our institutions, such as the education system and our religious institutions, towards that which liberty allows us to achieve. So would you say that our institutions can actually be reverted back to something more sane or can change at all? Or do you think they all need to be blown up? Or maybe it's case well, by case, depending on religious institution both. versus governmental, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Both. I mean, there are obvious there are obvious examples of institutions that should just be raised and rebuilt in some form, like the FBI or, you know, the Department of Justice or the public school system that have just been captured beyond recognizable, uh, beyond what is recognizable. They've been completely hijacked and weaponized and are being used for evil and they should be abolished. They should, they should, we should get rid of them and we can then discuss what comes next, but we can recapture our institutions. It's possible. Um, it's not easy. And I don't want to be one of those Republicans that says, oh, you know what? If you just pray a lot, or if you just make good decisions in your personal life, that will have a trickle-down effect to politics. I'm, I'm not degrading either of those things. I, I'm, a, I'm a devout Christian. I pray every day. I try to order my personal life and my family life towards what I think is good and right and beautiful and just. But that's not enough. Conservatives have fallen for this idea that government in and of itself is bad, and therefore any use of government is somehow tinged with, um, with, with stigma, right? That only liberals use government to achieve their ends. To hear the rest of Dave's and my conversation, go to Dave Rubin's YouTube account or his Rumble account and watch the whole thing. Thanks for watching today.